Parshat Vayakel, um, begins chapter 35 of Shmot, Lamad Hay. I'm going to read the first few Pesukim. Again, we uh, are going to see a bunch of Pesukim that seem to make sense, a lot of nuances and, um, you know, subtext references in here, which we're going to be looking into. Uh, and, of course, the big question is why we need to repeat that which was already said in Parashat Teruma. But we're going to first look at the Pesukim at the beginning here of chapter 35. Lamad Hay, it's source one on your source sheet. Um, and, of course, the source sheet is available online to those of you who are listening. Just um, on the uh, online link, you'll see a, a bit further down that you can uh, click on a link which will take you to the PDF of the source sheet. Vayakhel Moshe et kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Moses called the whole community of the children of Israel to assemble. So our first question here is why in this particular instance does Moshe Rabbeinu have to assemble everybody? Because we know, we know what we're talking about. He's going to instruct them to build the Mishkan. There are hundreds of references in the Torah to commandments that God gave to Moshe that he repeated to the Jewish nation. Um, and it always says... Or it says that Moshe spoke to the Bnei Israel and said to them, Why in this particular instance is the word Vayakhel used? And he gathered them and he assembled them. Et kol adat Bnei Israel, the entire nation of Israel. So there is this unusual additional layer of instruction, which is to the entire nation. In any event, Vayomer Alehem, he said to them, Eilehadvarim, these are the things, unnamed things at this stage, Asher Tziva Hashem Lasot Otam, which God instructed you to do. This is what you need to do. So what do you think he's going to continue with? Well, we know really in the back of our minds, even before we begin the parasha, what he's going to say. He's going to tell them to build a mishkan, right? That's not what he says. Look at Pasuk Bet. The Pasuk, Pasuk Bet begins as follows. It starts talking about a totally different subject. Six days you should work, and on the seventh day will be a Kodesh day. We translate the word Kodesh as holy, but as I've said many times before in my Shi'urim, the word Kodesh does not mean holy, it means different, separate, um, elevated by it being different and separate, okay? So the word Kodesh, holy, in and of itself, there's no such thing as holy. Something is only holy if you create it as a holy thing. So, for example, you are Makadesh, your wife. What does it mean to do Kiddushin to your wife? You don't make your wife holy. You separate your wife from all the other women on the planet, and she becomes your wife, Right? That's what, that's what Kiddush means in that, in that sense. So Kodesh for Shabbat means it's different from the other days of the week. Let's read the Pasuk again. Sheshet yamim Six days you will work. Kodesh. Shabbat Shabbaton. Now we talk about what is going to happen on that day. Shabbat Shabbaton. It's going to be a day of rest. Complete rest. Lashem for God. Anyone who works on that day shall surely be put to death. So 
Um, I have a question for you. Do we need to know what happens during the week in order to understand that Shabbat is Shabbat Shabbaton? Not really. Sheshet yamim te'asem begins. Why do we need to begin with those words? We don't need to, need to know that you need to work during the week. Obviously, if you don't work on Shabbat, uh, you can make that distinction yourself without it being written in the Pasuk, that you work during the week and you don't work on Shabbat. So the Pasuk could have, could have started, Bayom hashvi'i lachem kodesh Shabbat Shabbaton lashem. Why do we need to know Sheshet yamim te'asem what is it teaching us? The other, much bigger question is, we all thought at the end of the first Pasuk that we were going to hear instructions from Moshe Rabbeinu about building the Mishkan. Suddenly he's talking about Shabbat. And just to put this in context, only a few Pasukim earlier, Moshe Rabbeinu says, V'shamru Yisrael et ha-shabbat la'asot et ha-shabbat l'dorotam brit olam. So the, the verses that we use for Kiddush on Shabbat actually are also part of chapter 35, they, uh, or ch- the end of chapter 34, they precede this, um, this, this piece about Shabbat. The question is, what has Shabbat got to do with the Mishkan? Why do we need to know about Shabbat? Why is Shabbat associated with the Mishkan? So those of you who know will immediately answer that the 39 Malachot of Shabbat relate to those um, activities that were required in order to create the Mishkan. So if any of the things that were needed to do, that the Jewish nation needed to do in order to create the Mishkan, to fabricate the Mishkan, to put it up, were not permitted on Shabbat. There is an association between the 39 Malachot and what we call in Hebrew, Melechet HaMishkan, the work for the creation of the Mishkan. I get that. The question is why? Why is it deliberately the Mishkan that is associated with the laws and prohibitions of Shabbat? Let's look at Pasuk Gimel. Gimel. Just let's continue. You shouldn't light a fire in your homes for the whole of Shabbat. So from the general to the particular, we had this general instruction, you must observe Shabbat, it's a holy day, Shabbat Shabbaton. And now we have a particular law relating to Shabbat, that you're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbat, because it's Shabbat. Why do we need to know this particular law? We've just said, Kol yom kodesh. You shouldn't do malachot on Shabbat. Why do we need to have a law that specified regarding Shabbat in order for us to know what Shabbat is? Doesn't make much sense. Pasuk Dalad. Vayomer Moshe koladat b'nei Yisrael lemor. And Moses said to the entire congregation of the children of Israel, saying as follows, This is the thing that God instructed as follows, saying as follows. Didn't we just say that? Look at Pasuk Aleph. The end of Pasuk Aleph, it says, We've already said that. So why do we say again, If we already said it in Pasuk Aleph. And then he continues beginning the instructions of the Mishkan. 
take for yourselves this truma, this gift for God, anyone who has it in his heart, who is um, uh, generous-hearted, shall bring the Lord's offering, gold, silver, and copper, etc., etc., and the psukim continue. We'll We'll have a look at more psukim later on. But we, I've looked at the first four psukim and I've given you, um, I've suggested to you a number of issues with those psukim. We could quite easily have started the, the parsha with Pasuk Dalad. The three um, opening psukim, the introduction to chapter 35 are completely superfluous and unnecessary, at least to the untrained eye. Why did Moshe need to gather them? Why is he saying that these are the things that God commanded you to do, and then he speaks about Shabbat? Why does he say that you need to work during the six days of the week? We're not talking about the six days, we're talking about Shabbat. And what is the inclusion, what does the inclusion of burning fire in your homes on Shabbat have to do or why is it necessary to bring this specific law relating to the prohibitions of Shabbat in the introduction to this week's parsha? We could have quite easily have begun the parsha on Pasuk Dalad. Let's look first at the Abarbanel. So as you know, the Abarbanel um, commentary on the Torah, and we've done this many times before, the Abarbanel tends to ask a series of questions, and then he reverts back to the essence of the passage about which he's asked all these questions, and he goes through it offering um, solutions, either one overarching solution or several solutions which come together to answer the many questions he's posed. I've chosen the first two questions of the Abarbanel on this particular parasha, and we're going to deal, and we're going to, and I've included his answer as well. The answer that addresses those two questions. Hashe'ela ha'alef. The first question the Abarbanel asks is as follows. Im hayashem Moshe hikhil et kol Yisrael letzavotam amalechet hamishkan. If it is the case that Moses gathered together the children of Israel in order to instruct them how to construct a mishkan and their obligations Regarding that construction, and as he says himself, these are the things that God commanded you to do. Why in heaven's name does he begin with a completely different mitzvah, the mitzvah, the commandment to observe the Sabbath day? What does that have to do with Melechet HaMishkan? In any event, we know that the mitzvah Shabbat already preceded this particular chapter in the Torah because when God first um, instructed Moshe Rabbeinu about the fact that the Jewish nation would eat as a result of man that would come from heaven, he told the Jewish nation they had to observe the Shabbat. On Friday they would take a double portion so they wouldn't have to collect the man on Shabbat. Why is he instructing the Jewish nation again about Shabbat, if he's already told them about Shabbat, when he told them about the man. Okay, so you're going to say the man was a separate thing, it was a practical application 
regarding collecting the man on Shabbat. But it says in the Aseret brought, depending which version, either it says, Zachor et Yom HaShabbat Lekadsho, or Shamor et Yom HaShabbat Lekadsho, the commandment regarding Shabbat already appears in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. Why do we need to mention it again here? Va'al Maseh Mishkan, and the Maseh Mishkan. So what is, what is the necessity to include it three times in the Torah? It says it by man, it says it in the Aseret Hadibrot, and now it says it again with the instruction of the Mishkan. Why does it need to say it again? Umat Sorech Lezochra Po Po Pa'am Acheret. Why does it need to mention it again? V'hinei Bekisisa Bekitisa Nizgarachre Mishkan V'chan Betchilato. And we know that the end of Parshat Kitisa, I just told you, it says, V'shamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat la'asot et ha-Shabbat l'dorotam berit olam. The verses that we use for Kiddush, uh, Kiddush on Shabbos morning. Why does it need to say the instruction here again at the beginning of the gathering that Moses brought the Jewish nation together to tell them about the Mishkan? It's already been mentioned three times. Why mention it again? That is Abarbanel's first question. Question number two. At the very beginning of the parasha, at the end of the first verse, it says, These are the things that the Lord commanded you to make. Right? That's what it says. If you are trying to imagine what is it that Moshe Rabbeinu, what is it that Moses was referring to when he says, these are the things that God wants you to make, God wants you to do. What is he referring to? Clearly he's referring to the items that would be required in order to create a Mishkan, both the um, infrastructure of the Mishkan and the contents of the Mishkan. In which case, says Abarbanel, In which case, why does he repeat himself? Moshe Rabbeinu is not in the habit of repeating himself. If he said Eilehadvarim in Pasuk Aleph, even if he interrupted it by giving us the instructions regarding the prohibitions of Shabbat, why would he need to repeat himself again at the end of Pasuk Dalad where he says, He already said it in Pasuk Aleph. Why mention it again? says the Abarbanel. This is a double repetition. Right? He has said it once. Why say it again? Says Abarbanel, after Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he instructed the entire nation of Israel, the congregation of Israel, this included men and women, they should all gather in the tent of meeting. He gathered together the entire nation. That was what he did when he came down from Mount Sinai. Why? In order that they should hear directly from him, not from some third party or fourth party or some other method. 
they should hear from his mouth exactly what it was that God had instructed them to do. What was that thing? What did he wish to instruct them? What was he concerned about that every single person should hear? He wanted to tell them that, they, that God wanted them to donate whatever it was for the construction of the Mishkan. Because after he told them about the atonement that they had achieved as a result of God forgiving them for the sin of the golden calf, and that God, as a result of everything that had happened, he was going to deliver his shechina, as it were, so that it would reside, it would be resident in their midst. He was going to do great wonders for them. This is a pasuk in Kitisa. Things which would ne- had never been created, had never been seen in the entire universe and by any of the other nations. After hearing that, of course, everybody was going to be delighted. They were certain, they were absolutely sure that God would never forgive them for the sin of the golden calf. Because by implication, they were all guilty. Even though it was only a small number of them that had involved themselves in the sin of the golden calf, some 3,000, nevertheless, they were all implicated by, and they were guilty by association and they were certain that they would never be able to achieve a closeness with God that, um, that they had experienced in such a profound way at the foot of Mount Sinai. So now Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from Mount Sinai and he says to them, God will be close to you. To the extent that he will reside in your midst, there will be a mishkan. Make me a sanctuary and I will reside among you. That's what God is telling them. So they're going to be delighted when they hear this piece of news. Then, whilst they're in this euphoric mood, reacting to the wonderful news that God would reside in their midst, then he would tell them, he tells them about the matter of the construction of the sanctuary. Now that they know that God wants them, and God still believes in them, they are still his chosen nation. And he's given them a second set of two tablets. And he has reached a covenant with them. That he is going to place his presence, his shechina in their midst. So now suddenly they recognize that that relationship with they, that they were sure was over between them and God has actually been reignited and it's there to stay. That's an incredible moment. You know, there are moments of euphoria in life. You know, I'm going to give a mundane example. You, have an, an, you meet someone, you become very, very friendly with them and your friendship is amazing. 
The relationship is perfect. You complement each other. You enjoy each other's company. You can't wait to be with each other. Whatever the case may be, whether it's a platonic relationship or loving relationship, it's not important. A, a relationship that is absolutely beautiful from the first moment that you meet that person. And then, for whatever reason, you do something which makes the other person really, really upset. I think that we can all relate to that, right? Okay, so now, what is the relationship? You're sure the relationship is over. How can that person ever like me again? I really, really, you know, burnt my bridges. I've done a terrible thing. I betrayed our friendship, whatever, you know, whatever the situation is. And then that person comes to you and says, or sends a messenger, you should know, I love you the same as I loved you before. Nothing's changed. We still love each other. We still have a great relationship. Despite this bump in the road, we have an unbelievable relationship. And that relationship is going to continue, and I'm going to make sure it's going to continue. The euphoria of that moment is indescribable. Do you understand? It's a totally different feeling than when you originally initiated the friendship. Because it's a friendship that has gone through a very difficult moment, and emerged intact. That is the story of the Jewish nation and the sin of the golden calf. The initial relationship between them and God that resulted in the revelation at Sinai, this perfection, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who've been through this terrible experience in Egypt, have emerged, they've praised God. They came to Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. It's a perfect relationship. Nothing has ever gone wrong in that relationship. Suddenly, they create a golden calf. And the relationship is hanging by a thread. It's on a cliff edge, right? On a knife edge. And then God comes back through his messenger Moses and he says, not only is the relationship strong and powerful, I will reside in your midst. This is a moment of euphoria that exceeds anything that preceded it. It's when you know that a relationship is so strong that it can withstand that kind of knock, that is an incredible relationship. And that is what Moshe Rabbeinu is doing here at the beginning of Ayakel. He's telling him that he's telling the Jewish nation that this relationship is enduring and can withstand a masa egel. That is something that's going to stand. God said to them, I will reside in your midst, and I will reside in your midst. And therefore, after the Yemeha Kaas, the days of anger, that moment, the initial moment, of course, when you betray somebody or the friendship goes through that testing moment and there's great anger in the air and you know that that anger has to pass if the friendship is going to continue and then it passes and it goes from the Yemeha Kaas to the Yemeha Ratzon who tzrach Moshe letzavotam amalechet hamishkan. That was the moment to tell them about the Melechet HaMishkan. This is what God wants you to do. That's what he's saying it about. In other words, 
um, seize that moment. When you know the friendship is there, seize the moment. And the Jewish nation was ready to do anything for God. That's how pleased they were that the relationship hadn't ended. Now was the moment to say to them, I mean, this is, this is great fundraising advice, right? I mean, this, it's brilliant fundraising tactic. Moshe Rabbeinu knows this is the moment to ask them for the, for the things, for the Mishkan. You were worried the relationship was over. The relationship is not over. God is going to reside in our midst, but let's make sure it happens. Let's build them a Mishkan. I need your gold, your silver and your copper. Of course, we'll give you everything. It's a perfect moment. But you can see the dynamics here. So powerful. You can, you can feel how this, this whole thing unfolded, how it worked. So now, why did the mitzvah, the commandment, the directives regarding Shabbat need to be inserted here into the text? In order to tell them that it's only during the days of the week that you should do the things that need to be done in order to create the Mishkan and its vessels. But not on the Shabbat day, which is considered Kodesh Lashem. Why? You need to know that notwithstanding your great friendship with somebody, the end doesn't justify the means. There are red lines that we don't cross. You know, sometimes you can go a bit over the top. You can do something which isn't quite right. You know, you know you, you've heard the stories about people who want to make sure that the relationship, you know, they max out on their credit cards and take their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is on a holiday or buy them a diamond ring or a car or whatever because we need this relationship. It's so important for us to have this relationship. Yeah, but who's going to pay the bill, right? Who's going to pay the bill? In the end, it's going to create a far greater crisis and that's going to destroy the relationship. God wants us to keep Shabbat. Don't use Shabbat as the method by which you're going to gain a relationship with God because at the same time you're destroying the relationship if God wants you to observe Shabbat. On those six days of the week when you're meant to work, that's when you make the Melechet HaMishkan. But if you start working on Shabbat, there's no different than building a golden calf. It's the same as a golden calf. You're just going to be back to square one. So don't squander this opportunity by doing the wrong thing in order to maintain and sustain this relationship. That is why Shabbat is included here in the initial instruction relating to the Mishkan. The Amar, and he says, Why did Moshe Rabbeinu specifically pick the transgression of burning fire in your homes on Shabbat, Lahagid, in order to tell them, It's not just those other things that are forbidden on Shabbat. Even the Melacha uh, of Ochel Nefesh, cooking on Shabbat is forbidden. You should know Shabbat is a very special day. It's an unusual day. when, uh, And on that day, even the matters of cooking food in your home is forbidden. On no account are you to in any place um, ever light a fire on Shabbat in order to bake bread and in order to cook meat. In other words, you may say, well, I need the meat for Shabbat. God wants me to 
treat Shabbat as a special day. I need to have challah. I need to have meat. And if I don't have it, then of course I can cook it on Shabbat. No, no. Shabbat is that you are not allowed to cook. Even if you don't have meat that's cooked and even if you don't have bread that is baked. And, and he needs to add this because he's given a general instruction that you mustn't do any of the malachot. Because we know that on Pesach, for example, there is an instruction. In which case you might think, okay, is like Pesach. What's on Pesach? You can cook on Pesach. You're allowed to cook on Yom Tov. So maybe I'm allowed to cook on Shabbat. The, the uh, prohibitions regarding cooking are not included for the festival of Passover. In order for Moshe Rabbeinu to give the full context of what Shabbat means, the prohibitions of Shabbat are not like the prohibitions of Passover, and he needs to tell them that. Even the creation of food, the cooking of food, baking of food is prohibited on Shabbat. And he adds, why does he need to say in all your homes, in all your dwelling places? In order to tell them, you should know that there are certain mitzvot in the Torah which are connected to the land of Israel. And this is not one of them. Shabbat is not a mitzvah which is confined to the land of Israel. Shabbat is a mitzvah, is a commandment, is a way of connecting to God that is not exclusive to the Holy Land, to the Promised Land. In every place that you may dwell, you are obligated in the laws of Shabbat. And also because he knew that in the Mishkan, in the temple, there was fire that burnt on Shabbat. It's a paradox. You weren't allowed to use any of the Melachot of Shabbat in order to create the Mishkan. But once the Mishkan was created, there were certain rules of Shabbat which didn't apply in the Mishkan, in the temple itself. You, there was a fire burning on Shabbat. And they brought korbanot on Shabbat, and many of the laws of Shabbat were um, were were done. Uh, the prohibitions of Shabbat were transgressed, uh, even though it was Shabbat, because in the service of the Beit Hamikdash they were permitted to do that. Lachain Amar Khan, Therefore, it say, he says here, So he says it's in your dwelling places that you're not permitted to do the things which are prohibited on Shabbat. But when it comes to the Beit HaMikdash, which is God's residence, as it were, there the laws of Shabbat do not apply. And because he interrupted 
that which he had begun, which was the instructions regarding the construction of the Mishkan, he'd interrupted it with the laws of Shabbat. He returns back to the instruction regarding the creation of the Mishkan. When he repeats in Pasuk Dalad that which he'd already said in Pasuk Aleph. So the Abarbanel offers us a global approach to explain the relevance of Shabbat in this discussion and why it needed to be uh, preceded by an instruction regarding the Mishkan, even though it wasn't followed by the direct instructions. And then he comes back to something which he'd already begun in Pasuk Aleph. So that Barbanel creates the backdrop for us to understand why Shabbat is included in, this, in these initial Pasukim of the Vayakhel, regarding the construction of the Mishkan. Let's look at the Kliyakar. And he refers to the question which I began the Shi'ur with earlier on, which is the word Vayakhel, the strange inclusion of the word Vayakhel and the concept of the gathering of the Jewish nation in order to instruct them about the construction of the Mishkan. Why do we need the word Vayakhel? Says the Kliyakar. Moses gathered the entire congregation of the children of Israel. Perish Rashi. When did this happen? Do you know when this happened? When did this instruction take place, this great gathering? It happened the day after Yom Kippur. And earlier on in Shmot, in, in Parshas Yisrael, it says, it says as follows, And it was the following day, and Moses returned in order to judge the people, to arbitrate for the people. And Rashi says there, That was on Motsai Yom Kippur, the day after Yom Kippur. Okay, so what is, what is the meaning in Yisroi, and what is the meaning here? The Nira Lafarish says the Kliyakar, it would appear to me that the explanation is as follows. This gathering of the entire nation was in order to instruct them and inform them regarding the commandment to build a Mishkan and all the things that they needed to give in order to make that possible. And Moses was concerned that people might give something for the Mishkan that did not belong to them. And therefore he decided, this is the moment where I need to sit and arbitrate on things, on objects, on items of value that people may have which are in dispute. Because if there's one thing that's entirely inappropriate, it's to build a holy house for God from money that has been stolen. And you know what? Sometimes people steal money, they don't even think they're stealing money because they say, no, no, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And he needed to sit there and uh, sit in arbitration in order to establish the correct ownership of any object that was going to be donated to the Beit HaMikdash. Is it yours? Where did you get it from? How did you get it? 
Is the other person that you got it from, does he or she agree that it belongs to you? That's what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing on Matzah Yom Kippur. And that's what's mentioned in Parshas Yisrael. Al-Kain, Hichriz Moshe Tchila, Mi Baal Dvarim Yigash Eli. In order for this um, process to begin of taking Nadavot, Nadavot for the Mishkan, he, he made a public announcement, he put posters up all over the encampment, and he said, whoever owns anything should come to me, le mishpat, to judge, so that everybody would be totally at peace with everything that's given for the construction of the Mishkan. There would be no ill feeling about any of the items that are donated, because that would destroy the whole project before it even began. And, every, and he let everybody know what belongs to them or it does not belong to them. So if they brought him an object, they had a gold goblet or a silver plate, they would bring it to him. He said, where is it from? Where did you get it from? When did you obtain it? How did you obtain it? And he would listen to their answers and he would say, actually, this doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to the other guy. Or he would say to somebody who was complaining about something that they claim belonged to them, he'd say, no, 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 it doesn't really belong to you. It does belong to the other guy, etc. So that everybody who gave a donation for the Mishkan, we would know 100% that that money came from a, um, a suitable and honest place. And it was only after that occurred that he said to them, okay, these are the things that God needs from you in order to make the Mishkan. The word is there to tell you that Moshe Rabbeinu says, take from those things that belong to you, that I have informed you belong to you, so that everything that he took had an honest origin. And even though it wasn't possible for him to judge the entire nation, to arbitrate over these matters for an entire nation in one day. And even on that day, he didn't actually sit in arbitration the entire day. Because even though it says he sat there from morning until night, because if that's the case, when did he find the time to tell them about the creation of the Mishkan? So we know he didn't actually sit the whole day in arbitration. Because for certain he needed at some point to gather everybody together in order to inform them that they needed to create the Mishkan. Mikomakom, nevertheless. The Nedavot themselves, the gifts that were given in order for the Mishkan to be created, were not all given in one day. And so maybe he told them that any object about which there was a disagreement between two people as to who it belonged to and who had the ownership of it, that they shouldn't give that object until such time as the true and honest ownership of that object had been correctly established. In other words, this was a project so unusual so incredible in its conception 
that there could be nothing within that project that could undermine its credibility. And in order for that to be achieved, the origin of every single item that was donated needed to be established without equivocation. You know that when something goes to auction, you know, it, it happened before. I don't know if you've ever been involved in, in going to auction, that when objects of art go to auction, um, they have to establish the original, the ownership. You know, where, where does this object come from? Somebody said, well, I've had it for 40 years. Yeah. Who bought it 40 years ago? So often in the auction catalogue, you will see the provenance, that's the word that's used, the provenance of an item. That, you know, in 1978, it was in a Sotheby's auction. In 1963, it was in a Christie's auction. So you can trace back the provenance of a particular item so that its true ownership can be established. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing. He needed to establish the provenance of every single item that was going to be used for the creation of this extraordinary temple. And, with, and looking at this, not from a literal interpretation, but a slight, a remez is a sort of, um, you know, it's hinted at in the text. That the whole concept of the hakel, the word hakel being used, and the concept of gathering everyone together for this particular instruction is so that he could um, create, foster peace among the entire nation, between everybody. Because nobody wants to dwell in one place with a venomous snake. And after, in, in um, light of the fact that he wanted to instruct them about the creation of the Mishkan, that everybody should be partnered in this project. It's as if he's putting everybody into one giant location because we're all involved. It's like a community that builds a shul or a group of parents that build a school. They all have to be of one mind about that location, that building, because they, they all have to be invested in conjunction with each other in order for that project to succeed. They can't be in disagreement. He needed to make sure that everybody was entirely in agreement regarding this project and was friendly with everybody else. And that's why he needed to gather them. That's why it says, Hakel, right? Moshe. He needed to gather them together to to see and that they were all of one mind, or perhaps to create the circumstances that would enable them to be all of one mind. Rashi, And it's for this reason that Rashi explains, that this occurred after Yom Kippur. Why do we need to know when exactly it was? Why does it need to be on Matsoi Yom Kippur, the day after Yom Kippur, that they were gathered together? kol hachaniyot. It's an incredible idea. He says, can you imagine? Everybody's always in disagreement, right? You know, either, I, I think I've said this before. There's only, only, only one thing that two Jews can agree upon. That's what the third one should give to charity, right? 
You know, we, the, the one thing you can be certain of is that, is that Jewish people are going to find reasons to disagree with each other. Generally speaking, very emotionally and, you know, with, with great passion. And uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, a business life, people can fall into disagreements. And that's the situation that occurred. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was nervous about. Um, but before Matan Torah, they all came together. How do we know that? They gathered together in, in a camp as one. So how could he gather them together for this project at a time perhaps when they were in dispute with each other? They're not going to be ready to do that which they need to do in order to create the Mishkan. And that's why he gathered them together after Yom Kippur. Why? Why after Yom Kippur? Give Yom Kippur. The whole point of Yom Kippur is, what do we say to each other before Yom Kippur? Are you Michael me? Do you forgive me? You try and reach an agreement, some kind of modus vivendi, societal modus vivendi, where you are able to get on with everybody in your social circle, in your community, the community at large, at least for Yom Kippur. Nobody, nobody should fight on Yom Kippur. So on Matzah Yom Kippur, after they've been through the process of Yom Kippur, and after they've all gathered together in one group, it was possible for him to gather them all together, and there's no disputes. Incredible to think that, uh, that what the Kliyakar is saying is actually... Even at the time of the Midbar, even the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, there was disputes among the Jews, right? It's, it's there in our DNA, it's in our, it's in our history. That it, there was no time in history when all the Jews got on with each other. And yet, on Motsu Yom Kippur, everybody's okay with everybody else. And that was the moment, grab that moment, Moshe Rabbeinu thought to himself, take that moment and use it, utilize it, this unity of all the Jewish nation at that moment would enable this Mishkan project to get off the ground. If you would have let a day or two pass, the peace that reigned would not have lasted. Because by that time, people would have already, you know, you know what it's like. Motim Kippa, everybody's great, patting each other on the back, hugging each other. We all love each other. And then one or two days later, all the old enmities, unfortunately, reemerge, right? Even at the time of the Midbar, nothing changes. And he says, let's grab this moment of unity and use it and utilize it for the, for the, uh, to forward this great project. And that there shouldn't be disputes with regards to money or enmity or envy or any of the things that would undermine the sanctity of this project. And that's why he decided that he would arbitrate also on that day when everybody's still in a good mood and united and friendly with each other. Because everybody's going to walk into the into the courtroom, as it were, 
and in a good frame of mind, the right frame of mind to resolve any financial disputes between them because they're still riding that cloud nine of Yom Kippur the day before. Because then they would be worthy of residing in one location. This beautiful Mishkan, this sanctuary, which is a symbol of the unity and of the uh, congregational aspect of them all. The Malbim continues as follows. He says, These are the things that God instructed for you to make. Says the Malbim, he asks, it's very strange that um, he would suggest that this is what God told them to make. The Pasuk makes no sense. What does it say? These are the things that God told you to do. How does the next Pasuk continue? Look at the, go back to source number one. It says, These are the things that God told you. What does that mean? To do, right? Then how does it continue? So what is he telling them? To do something or not to do something? He's telling them, you mustn't do a malachah on Shabbat. So how did the Pasuk begin by saying, this is what you must do? And then it tells them things that you shouldn't do. You're not allowed to do. It's things that you shouldn't do. Says the Malbim, it doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. The fact that it says that you're not allowed to work on Shabbat, the reason it presents it that way is to tell us that the construction of the Mishkan had to take place during the six work days of the week. Okay? So in fact, it was an instruction to do something. By telling you the time when you can't do something, by implication, it's telling you when you can do it. These are the things that God told you to make. Make them not on Shabbat. In other words, make them during the week. And what he's saying is, even though God has told you that you must do the work that will result in the creation of the Mishkan on the six days of the week, you must do it. Only do it on the six days of the week because Shabbat is holy. Never desecrate the Shabbat in order to create the Mishkan. Why? You're not allowed to do anything that's for the creation of the Mishkan on that day. So what is it talking about? Because we might have imagined that, as I've mentioned already, the avodah, the service of the temple, was something that was permitted on Shabbat. In other words, Shabbat is pushed to the side in order to allow for the service of the temple to be done. 
Ken melechet hamishkan v'keilav. So too it should be for the creation of the Mishkan, the Mishkan project, the construction, should also put aside the laws of Shabbat. Shehem machshirei ha'avodah. Im yifshel la'asotam b'chol. If it wouldn't be possible for some reason to have done them during the week, you, you should be able to do them on Shabbat because they enable the service of the Mishkan to take place and therefore you should be able to do them on Shabbat as well. Because if the service itself can be done on Shabbat, surely that thing which enables the service to be done can also be done on Shabbat. So you might think that if something breaks on Shabbat and something needs to be repaired on Shabbat, you should be able to do it because that will enable the service of the Mikdash or the Beit HaMikdash to, to take place. Says the Malbim, the whole point of talking about the things that can't be done on Shabbat with reference to the creation of the Mishkan is to tell you that it's only the service of the Mishkan that can be done on Shabbat. But those things which enable the service of the Mishkan to take place cannot be done on Shabbat. That is the purpose of that instruction. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to just do one more source, the Malbim number five, or miss out number six. Those of you who are listening to this online can download the source sheet and go through number six yourselves. But let's do this final Malbim, a beautiful Malbim. And he quotes a Pasuk slightly later on. It's Pasuk Chaf Aleph. kol saolibo. The Pasuk says as follows. And everyone who excelled in ability... And everyone whose spirit moved him came, bringing God his offering for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the sacred vestments. So the Malbim picks up on two definitions of people in this Pasuk. There are people who are described as Asher Nisaolibo. And also there's people who are described as Asher Nadva Rucho. Right? So Nisaolibo and Nadva Rucho is two different things. What, what do they mean? What exactly do they mean? And how are we meant to understand them? in relation to these instructions regarding the construction of the Mishkan. Yesh hevdel, ben nadiv lev u ben nadiv ruach. Says the Malbim, there's a big difference, somebody who gives from his heart and somebody who gives from his spirit. Shaharuach panimi yoter min halev. You should know that your spirit is much more internal, is much buried much deeper than what we refer to as your heart. Shalev hu akeli achitsoni, because the, the heart is, as it were, the most external vessel, the most external organ or, or root of why somebody does something. And the spirit is the, is the deepest, it's buried the deepest inside your psyche. And he's going to explain it. 
הרוח הוא מעלה ציורים מעומק הנפש ומגלה אותם על פני הלב. The ruach is that which almost subconsciously or unconsciously motivates people to do something. It's not an external thing. It's not something that can be prompted. It's something that's deep inside you. You know, uh, you know I, just to give, uh, you know, uh, again, a mundane example. I don't need to think before I walk onto a road that I need to look if a car is coming. It's so instinctive in me that I have to look because I don't want to get run over. And my parents train me when I was a little child, when you walk into a road or you want to cross the road, you need to check for a car. I don't need to engage my mind. I don't need to be in the mood in order to do that. Okay, that's at the most mundane level. But at a certain level, even your, the, the way that you deal with people, your politeness to people, your friendship towards people, your tolerance of situations, is, it can come from two places. It can either be your ruach or it can be your lave. Am I in the mood to be nice today? Or am I just nice by default? There's a, there's a massive difference. It would appear to the outside to be exactly the same thing. If you walk into, you know, into a room and you meet people and say, Hi, how are you doing? So lovely to see you. Nobody's going to know whether that's something which comes from your ruach or whether it comes from your lave. Let's see what the Malbin makes of that. What is the lave? The lave is that which governs the way you act in life. The most, uh, you know, at the, the final level, as it were. There are those who have an extremely generous spirit. Somebody who's completely infused with goodness and kindness, their natural state of being is kindness and generosity and ger- generous spirited. But then your heart overrules you. You would give everything you give up the shirt off your back. But your heart tells you, don't give the shirt off your back because then you're going to be cold and you're not going to have any clothes. So there is, there is this kind of barrier that is the front level, the, you know, the interface between you and the world. And then there is your instinct. I want to be kind. I want to do the right thing. There are those who are not naturally kind at all. They are not kind. They don't want to give things away. But then he doesn't care really about money. He's not interested in materialism. And therefore, even though he's not particularly kind and he doesn't care for other people, but that person will give everything away. They don't, it doesn't bother them. They don't need anything and they'll give everything. They're not going to be a miser with their money because they don't, but they don't really care about people. They don't like people. They're misanthropic, but they're still very generous. So you've got this... These two extremes, you've got people who are naturally kind, but they like money too much and they don't want to give it all away. And then you've got people who are not naturally kind. They're quite nasty people, actually, not generous spirited, but they'll give everything away because they don't care for money too much either. Says the Malbim, 
It begins by saying, everybody who was moved by their heart, his, he was completely willing and open to the idea of giving everything that he needed to give in order for this project to succeed. Similarly, all those who instinctively just understood that this is a very positive idea, that they should give their, their um, whatever it was that was required in order for this project to proceed. So basically, before we begin, sorry, we continue with Derech Hadrush, what the Malbim is saying is that both types of people in this particular situation, both extremes and obviously everybody in between, was motivated or Moshe Rabbeinu um, wanted them to be motivated and they responded absolutely in kind. Everybody from every walk of life and from every type of um, psychological makeup was ready to support this project. It truly united every type of character. That the, the main aspect of the giving of the gifts um, that would enable the holiness to be drawn out of it was if it was from both the heart and from the spirit. That really was the main thing about these gifts. Please take the truma, my truma, says God, from everybody who really wants to give it. That's who you should take it from. The essence of the truma has to be that the heart wants to give, that there is a generosity of heart. And you should know that there were those among the Jewish nation who did not have as much money as the very wealthy um, uh, philanthropists. They didn't have the ability to give. They, it just wasn't possible for them. You know, they wanted to give, but they didn't have that possibility. Says the Malbim. You know the Ruach that we're talking about here? Literally spirit. Can you imagine giving in spirit? They wanted to give. Had they had the money in their pocket, they would have given it. But they weren't able to give the things that they wanted to give because they physically didn't possess them. Nevertheless, they were reckoned. Why? It's called Nadiv Ruach. There were those among the Jewish nation who thought to themselves, if only I would have the opportunity to give, I would have been the most generous giver. I was an, they were Nadiv Ruach. They weren't a Nadiv Lev. They never got there. And God who knows what goes on in a person's heart. He received this donation as if they had actually given something physical. But there were, of course, those who gave who weren't reckoned among this group because they had given 
פיזיקלי, אבל לאלה חשב השם כאילו הביאו מנדבתם את כל המשכם ואת כל כליו. Those who gave with their ruach, God imagined as if they'd given the whole mishkan. There was an element that God was um, incredibly moved by the spirit of these people, their generosity, at least in their minds, that they wished to give. That was something which was, in, which was uh, very much appreciated by God. That which it says, and everybody who was moved by his heart, those who actually gave, the things that they gave were only the things that they wanted to give. Kesef or Zahav on a Choshet, whether they gave silver or gold or copper. In other words, the Nadiv Lev only gave that which he wanted to give. The people who are considered as a Nadiv Ruach, that those people who never actually brought anything, they weren't able to donate any aspect of those things that were sought for the creation of the Mishkan. It was just in their in their spirit, they wanted to give, they wished they could give. Who in his heart wanted, would have built the whole Mishkan themselves had they been able to do so. God reckoned as, that, as if that Nadiv Ruach brought the entire Mishkan and all the vestments and all the service of the Mishkan. Why? Because their intention was, had I had the money, I would have given everything. In other words, God appreciates your intention, even if you're not able to do everything that you want to do. God reckoned as if they had brought everything that was required for the tent and for the vessels, and for the holy vestments. We'll leave it here for today.